Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name is Ollie Henderson. Thanks so much for all the feedback from last week's podcast and for the newsletter which followed up this Sunday. Anecdotally, I think many people are looking forward to some sort of return to the office, but I think we're all in agreement that we need to do things very differently. So now's the time to start thinking about that and start thinking about the things that work when we're face-to-face that perhaps aren't as successful over video calls. Now, today's episode is on a slightly different subject, but relevant nonetheless to the situation which we've been experiencing for a year now. Just before Christmas last year, a friend of mine recommended a book called Endure, which is written by today's guest, Alex Hutchinson. The book is about the limits of human performance, and it starts by focusing on the record attempt by Elliot Kipchoge, supported by Nike, to beat the two-hour barrier for the marathon, and the relationship between physical and mental limits. Now, for me, it was appropriately timed nine months into a global pandemic, which has many times felt like an endurance race in itself. Alex has a really interesting take on endurance. He is a trained physicist. He received a PhD from Cambridge. He is also an elite runner and he is now a journalist and an author, of course, a process which takes a fair amount of endurance in itself. He also, like me, has young children, so has been battling managing work with homeschooling and everything in between. So we had a really interesting, wide-ranging discussion, covered his book and the themes of endurance and mental and physical limits. We also discussed the importance of recovery, and we dipped into the value and potential risk of wearable devices. If you're enjoying this podcast series, please make sure to subscribe and share it. Also check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, which I link to in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Alex Hutchinson. So Alex, thanks very much for joining me. It's interesting timing, actually. We're recording on the 23rd of February, and there are lots of stories in the news at the moment about so-called super shoes. And I'm really interested to get your take on this, particularly within the context of your book, which has a narrative running through it about Nike's attempt at breaking the two-hour marathon record. Yeah, the the shoes thing has been going on in various forms since about 2016. And I would say it's the biggest story in sports science in a couple decades. Um, The backstory is that road running, so like marathons, has been radically changed by the fact that there's shoes that allow you to go several percent faster. So for an elite marathon, a couple minutes faster. And then the new wrinkle is now there's debate about track spikes, different, the, the, the road super shoes are these big, thick, cushioned shoes with a carbon fiber plate, big, chunky things that you wouldn't think you could sprint in, but they've developed, first they developed a sort of a track spike version, which is, has cushioning, but not quite as much. And that has allowed world records in things like the 5,000 meters to Elliot Giles just set a British record second fastest all time in the 800 meters, which is, you know, less than two minutes. So very short, fast races Mm. are being, records are being eradicated. And that shoe designed for the 100 meters, which was set to launch last summer and didn't because obviously last year was a bit crazy. But the the rumor, the unsourced rumors are that it has been scrapped by Nike because other manufacturers are complained and worried that, you know, the headline in, and I think it was the Times is, you know, an inferior athlete erase Usain Bolt's records. Yeah, it's it's a it's a strange time because it's a, a, big, a big debate over what's acceptable technology, what's what's cheating, what's what's sport all about. And it becomes a 
uh, as much a, a philosophical debate as it does a, a, a technological debate. Yeah, I find it really interesting because where do you draw the line between technological improvement, particularly around shoes? I mean, Nike themselves improvised and improved and iterated around the shoe, didn't they? That was probably where they emerged as preeminent manufacturers. It does seem like if you actually look at these shoes, it's almost like a spring it looks like underneath the track shoes, doesn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's the one, one sort of baseline point I'll make is the original rules, what the, the way they were written was like, you can't get unfair and an unfair advantage from shoes, but it didn't specify what unfair is. Mm. The extreme argument that it's like, it's unfair if the shoes make you faster. It's like, well, why do you think you're wearing shoes? Like if, if, if you don't think you should be allowed to wear shoes that makes you faster, yeah. then by all means, let's have the Greek Olympics where everyone's naked or whatever. So the whole point of shoes is they make you faster. And the more subtle question is, well, how much faster is okay? So you making the point, which is a common one, that these shoes look like they have springs in them. And in fact, they have a, a rigid fiber plate in, in of this thick springy sole that gives it some, some, some springiness in a sense. The counter argument to that is like, yeah, every shoe has a spring in it. It's called a midsole. That's the whole point of the foam right. at the bottom, on the bottom of your shoe. That's the reason we don't just run in bedroom slippers. We have not just to protect the foot, but every shoe uh, compresses when you land on it and then springs back and pushes you forward. These shoes, suit, yeah. these shoes do it better than any shoe has ever done it before. And, and I think there is a very strong case to be made that they're distorting the competitive playing field. But that's the sort of absolute arguments that any shoe that makes you faster or, oh, it has a spring in it. These don't stand up to scrutiny. And that's what, it's what makes the debate tricky. So I mentioned before the context of the two hour marathon. Now your book, endure which we'll obviously talk about today you're exploring the challenge the pursuit of this record and it's uncovering whether we create physical barriers or whether it's something mental but what was your involvement and what was your insight behind the scenes in that record attempt but the, i mean the, the backstory to go back maybe a little farther than you intended is but back in 2014 uh runner's world so i'm a science journalist. I was working for Runner's World at the time. And, and Runner's World asked me to do a big report on, is it possible to run a two-hour marathon? And so I spent a few months talking to experts, crunching data, and I put together a 10-page report with lots of graphs and pretty pictures. And the, the sort of the bottom line at the end of that article was that I thought, yes, a two-hour marathon will be humanly possible. And I think it'll happen in 2075. So that's the sort of context we're working in that this, you know, maybe someday humans are going to do this, but it's not anytime soon. And then mm. in 2016, I got a call from my editor at Runner's World saying, hey, are you available for to spend a few months on a story? We have an opportunity to go behind the scenes on this top secret thing. And uh, I was like, well, okay, well, what, what are we talking about here? Well, turns out Nike is going to try to orchestrate a sub two hour marathon. And at that point, I was like, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's That's not human like either they're idiots and whatever you may think of nike in general they're not idiots um or there's something funny going on and so i i ended up i i was like well okay either there's something really exciting in which case i'll write about it or there's a bunch of like bull being <laughs> spun and in which case i'll go write about that mm. and um so i spent six months behind the scenes reporting on what this was called the breaking two project and it was in may of 2017 Nike put together this elaborate exhibition where, you know, they rented a Formula One track in Italy and they had 
you know, a Tesla pace car uh, driving at exactly the right pace and a, a, all sorts of like they, they took care of all the details you could think of to try and make a marathon as fast as possible, including giving the runners these shoes that hadn't yet been released to the public and that nobody knew about these. They were called the Vaporfly. And, they, and they'd been the, the big, big difference. And what there were two things that caught my attention. One is that Nike obviously was willing to spend millions of dollars on this. So they really believed the shoes must work. But second of all, they believed so much that they they gave they sent some pairs to the University of Colorado and had them be tested against Nike's previous best shoe and against the Adidas shoe that the current marathon world record had been set in. And this, this is something that almost never happens in the shoe business. Every year there will be a shoe that is uh, – every year there will be like 10 shoes that are that, where there's a claim that it's a super shoe. Rarely does anyone – put it through testing to say, we can measure it. You burn 4% less energy when you're running at a given pace. So it was a radical change. The end The end result was Elliot Kipchoge, the, the reigning Olympic champion, ran two, two hours, zero minutes, 25 seconds, um, which was a couple, two and a half minutes faster than the world record. It wasn't sub two, but it clearly showed that under those conditions with these shoes and all these other things, it was possible. And two years later, he did it yeah. in Vienna and went sub two. Yeah, yeah. And did that trigger you to start the process of writing the book or did, had you already conceived of a book prior to that event and, you know, that exhibition? Completely the opposite in some ways. I, I'd, I'd been working on this idea of a book on the, the idea of human limits and, and how they're defined and what feels like physical limits and to what extent the brain uh, plays a role. I'd started working on that in about 2009, 2010. Right, I'm, okay. I'm a slow, <laughs> a slow worker. Um, so I, I'd been researching it uh, for, for a long time. And I had actually almost finished writing the book. Um, I finished it in about in early 2017. And then this race took place mm. in May 2017. And it was like, I need to use this somehow. And so I actually went back and, and in a sense, yeah. rewrote the book or, or reverse engineered into the book. The way it ends up is, is that the sub two hour marathon chase is a, is the sort of scaffolding of the book that I tell it in stages yeah. throughout the book. And the reason is, is this is such a perfect encapsulation of the ideas that I'm, that I'm writing about because going back to 2014, you ask me, I'm like, no, no one's running sub two hours. That's not possible right yeah. now. And then Elliot Kipchoge, the guy who ended up doing it, he is this sort of Yoda figure who who speaks in aphorisms about, you know, you believe it's impossible, I believe it's possible, and that's the difference between you and me. Um, you know, he, he's and and again, you know, I I take that with a grain of salt, but but he's all about the idea that we put limits on ourselves, we we accept the limits that are imposed, whether externally or internally, and that those limits don't reflect what our physical capabilities are. And, and so, uh, and so it became a sort of perfect lens to, to explore this idea of what, you know, which limits are real and how, how do we find, figure that out? Yeah. Well, it's a compliment that, um, it was difficult to tell that you'd reverse engineered it. So, uh, no, it, it, it worked really well as a narrative. <laughs> oh, <good>. <laughs> and let's return to, uh, I mean, rewind many, many years. There's often people talk about the banister effect, don't they? About the the, the four minute mile and the same idea that actually there was this, you know, arbitrary number essentially which people didn't believe could be broken. Maybe you could explain how the the story behind that as well and the 
subsequent um, sub- subsequent uh, sort of times which people were were, were making prior, after Roger Bannister broke the the four minute mile record. Yeah, and the four minute mile is is in a sense the whole two hour thing was like, hey, perfect, I have a a modern version of the four minute the mile chase, day, which yeah, has become right, yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's become this sort of cliche or allegory or or parable about mental limits. Um, the, as always with these things, the, the the truth is a little more complex than the the, the story get that, that gets told. I mean, what what I found interesting is there were two guys. I mean, or arguably three, but let's say there were two main guys chasing the four minute mile: Roger Bannister, the, the British runner, and John Landy, the Australian. Landy had run four oh two six times before Bannister got got close. And he, there's a few quotes on record, you know, in, in newspaper articles where he says essentially, it's, it, I think it's a, it's a brick wall. I can't do it. He's accepted that he can't do it. Bannister goes ahead and does it um, under circumstances that are actually very similar to the Nike Breaking Two race with, you know, a, a special setup, uh, pacemakers which were controversial at the time, and yada yada. Anyway, Bannister does it. Three weeks later, Landy runs even faster. He runs three fifty seven, and it's like, well, you know. Mm. The, the the hypothetical question is, what does Landy do if Bannister doesn't do it? What, what, does, does, was he going to run 357 that day no matter what? Or is it Bannister having done it that unlocks it? And there's certainly, then if you, you know, no one in history has run a four minute mile. Bannister does it. Landy does it right after. Four people do it within a year. And then there's like, you know, within a few years, there's like 15 people and it, it becomes commonplace. Um, it turns out if if you go back and look at the, the circumstances like well actually this is this is 1954 the world's emerging from the sort of privations of of world war ii you can look at there's similar progress in the 5000 and and in the pole vault and in all sorts of other other events so maybe this was destined to happen anyway but even if you strip away all the sort of the caveats i think there was there's something to it i think i think john landy i think there's it's not a coincidence that he did it three weeks after Bannister did it. I think there's something about seeing something done, whether it's a round number barrier like four minutes or just, I think if you, if you think about human progress in general, why do human records keep getting faster? Um, put it this way. There's a lot of money in horse racing and dog racing, and they, they tend to get faster and faster and faster, they, but they've sort of plateaued since about the 1960s. Um, and that's because I, I think the physiology is not changing all that much anymore, but humans, unlike horses and dogs, they know what everyone else has done in his. If you're the fastest runner, marathon runner in the world, you know who ran what last year. And if someone ran 201, you're like, I know I can run two flat 59 because if that guy ran 20100 and I trained mm. with him, why wouldn't I be able to run one second faster? And so there's this um, this sense yeah. in which the limits that we, but 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 it's it's very rare to see huge breakthroughs. No, if 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 the record is 201, no, people aren't like, I can run 156. They're like, no, I can run too flat. And so we see records coming down incrementally, I yeah. think because of that mental effect and that imposition of barriers. Yeah. And I suppose that the, there's the, the theme, both in your book, but sort of generally around this sort of topic is the balance between physical limitations and mental limitations. But there's also a narrative which runs through it, which and I'm not sure it was intended as such, but there's two kind of characters who... Um, have a similar viewpoint but slightly in conflict and the, the first of them is tim noakes and he's you, well, you, you can explain but this idea of the central governor theory and then later on i'm not sure if you pronounce it right is it samuele marcora as far as i know it's samuele marcora um i won't, I won't claim to be an italian pronunciation expert i call him sam <laughs> so i just <laughs> 
Yeah, it would be good. great to talk about the subtleties of each of their views because, again, there's slight differences, aren't there? And there's also parallels. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the question they're trying to answer is, okay, let's say we agree that the uh, it's not just about like lactic acid and VO2 max and muscle fibers that, and, and I think we know this, if, if, if I go and run a 5K every Saturday for the next month, I'm not going to run the same time over and over again. And the differences in those times are not going to be explainable by the fact, just by sleep or, or whatever. Some days you, you, you knock it out of the park. Sometimes, some days you really manage to push yourselves. Other days you don't. And how do you incorporate that, the, that mental aspect into a, a scientific understanding of endurance? And so Tim Noakes is a South African scientist who in the 90s, um, he really brought this question to the, to the forefront. He, he really sparked uh, the interest in this field. And his idea was this, what he called the central governor model. And it's something that has evolved a lot over, over the, the intervening years. So it's, it's, it's actually very hard to say exactly what the model is because it, it changed a lot. But ultimately, it was this idea that um, you don't stop or slow down or reach your limits because of, there's some catastrophe in your body, that you're, you're, you know, your heart's not getting enough oxygen or your muscles are about to uh, you know, burn with acid. You stop because your brain doesn't want you to get there. Your, your brain is constantly anticipating and holding you back from the precipice. And so, and, and, and crucially this happens, this is not a, a calculation. You're not like, I better not go any faster. Otherwise I'm going to not make it to the finish line. It's like, it's happening. You, you go out for a run on a hot day and you're, you're going slower right from the start without any, without meaning to, you just automatically are adjusting to try and make sure that you make it mm. to whatever your notional finish line is uh, safely, as, as fast as you can within the constraints of safety. And yeah, it's very hard to get into the sort of neuroscience of how, you know, the central governor, the, the, one of the criticisms was like, okay, well, where do we find the central governor in the brain? It's like, well, no, there isn't a little part of the brain that's called the central governor. This is a sort of uh, a, a deeply distributed set of instincts and intuitions and behaviors that have been wired into us over you know eons that that prevents us from getting to the to, to our limits now Samuel Marcora came along in the sort of late 2000s to you know 2008 2009 and he offered what what he would argue is a is a is a different interpretation it has a lot in common it's also explaining like why is it that it, the the moment when we quit, if if I say get on a treadmill and run at this pace until you can't anymore, the only the, the best predictor of when I'm going to jump off the treadmill it's 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 in the brain. It's a decision, and so his fundamental point is actually it's all conscious. It's it's a it's voluntary. You're weighing. It's there's not some magical uh, calculation in your brain that's happening without your knowledge. Ultimately, your sent your perception of effort is increasing when you're when you're working hard and ultimately the perception of effort reaches a point that you can't tolerate it anymore and you decide to quit so every 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 time you lose or every time you don't set a world record you have chosen not to now it doesn't mean you had the choice to set a world record but you've ultimately your conscious choices have dictated that which is a sort of challenging thing to to accept for anyone mm -hmm. who's you know raced and and felt like they're pushing themselves to to their limit now i i just i should I should make the point that if you were to ask Noakes and Marcora or the people who work with them, if you, if you really start pushing, the the differences between them aren't as aren't as stark as as they try to 
claim. Like Marcora is perfectly aware that there are things that happen unconsciously. Like you can trick people into into change, in, into altering their effort by changing the th- the temperature without them knowing or whatever. There are, there are things that happen beneath your consciousness, and Noakes also knows. Of course, there's conscious decisions to to quit. So. I, I'm actually not entirely sure how different it, there's different names, different ways of describing them, these things, but I think they're converging on the same idea, which is that for whatever reason, probably evolutionarily, we have a very strong desire not to kill ourselves. And so it's impossible. I can't just go out on the street and say, I'm yeah. going to run till I pass out. It just becomes, you just can't do it. And, mm. and whatever mix yeah. of, of cognitive processes happen, this is, this is the, sort of what we wrestle with is how, how do you get yourself to push a little harder um, knowing that you're not ever going to be yeah. able to get to your theoretical limits. You undertook some brain endurance training at some point. Is that right? Yeah. So this, I mean, this is the kind of neat where it's, things get which, neat. So it's, it sounds, which sounds pretty full on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you, you, it's, it's not a sort of super deep thought to say, you know, your, your brain has an effect on, on what your limits are. We know that. So the interesting question is, well, okay, what can we do about it? Can we, can we use this knowledge to, to, mm. to change our performance? And there, there are a number of different things you consider, but, but one that Mark came up with is, is like, well, if you, if, you know, mental fatigue, if, if your brain influences how hard you're willing to push, maybe we can train that in the same way that if you want your body, if you want your muscles to be able to handle more fatigue, you go out and do physically fatiguing things every day or three times a week or whatever the case may be, and your muscles adapt and get stronger. So what happens if we do mentally fatiguing tasks, tasks that require sustained focus, which is really the key to, to pushing yourself is to, you, you need to be able to sustain your attention and your focus to overcome this natural instinct to slow down and stop or quit or whatever. And so the the sort of simple toy model that he came up with is you sit at a computer and you play basically a computer game, um, very simple computer game where letters or numbers or arrows flash on the screen and you hit a button in response to what you see. You have to hit it as quickly as possible. Um, it's very simple, but if you do that for 90 minutes, it is it is crushingly boring and, and, and hard. It leaves you very drained. Yeah. And he showed that this really hurts your performance. It hurts it like it even though you're just sitting at a computer it it hurts your f- physical performance um like substantially the 90 minutes in front of a computer is seems to be the equivalent of like doing 100 drop jumps off a box in terms of trashing your legs you try yeah, like wow. that trashes trashes your mind to the mm-hmm. same degree as the drop jumps trash your legs so if you do that 3 times a week for a few months which is what i, I did it 5 day, 5 days a week for for about 12 weeks before a marathon i ran and uh you know, the truth is that kind of experiment, I have no idea whether I would have run faster or slower without doing that training, but I do know that you couldn't pay yeah. me enough to go through that again. It's it's like super boring, super time consuming. <laughs> Maybe if I was on the verge of winning the Olympics, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll go through that. But, but in most contexts, it's like, first, yeah, you're like, this was really unpleasant and you can't help wondering if I would have gotten more benefit from lying on the sofa, reading a book or doing core strength training or whatever the yeah, case yeah. may be there's always an opportunity cost yeah well and as you're describing that to me it's impossible for me not to draw a parallel to the fact that we're now reverting to doing many people doing six to seven eight hours of video calls a day and no wonder everyone's so tired all the time i mean it's kind of obvious isn't it really you're just staring at it, you know a screen giving it full attention over that period of time is exhausting in a very different way to physical exertion but nonetheless mentally taxing yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really interesting because so Marcora published 
his first study on mental fatigue in 2009. And it was this, again, it was the study where it's like mental fatigue hurts physical performance. Part of the reaction is like, well, duh, everyone knows that if you have a really stressful day at work and then try and work out, it's not going to be your best workout. But at the same time, the size of the effect was so big and to, and to see it demonstrated in a sort of such a clear way, it's it's actually been become a huge focus for professional sports teams and for Olympic sports orga- organizations in the last mm. decade. And and it's not necessarily, you know, fancy brain training. It's just being aware of the the role of mental fatigue and planning your day or your routine in such a way that so if you're an athlete, if you know, if you're running a marathon on Sunday morning and let's you know you're tapering your physical training because you want your body to be fresh, so you've got lots of time on Saturday because you're not running. That doesn't mean that's the day when you do your taxes, you know, so that you're exhausted from mental effort yeah. the next day. You, you want to make sure that you're mentally fresh. Yeah. And from a, just from a, it's something I now think about much more actively in terms of like, if I'm giving a talk or a presentation, or if I have something important to do, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to be, I try to be more aware of like, well, what am I doing before that? What am I going to be mentally fresh and ready to, to, to tackle that challenge? Or am I going to be already kind of distracted and beaten down because I was trying to to get some busy work done in the hours before that? Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think, actually, you mentioned earlier on, clearly the one of the key components about those um, attempts at breaking a record, whether it be the two-hour or the four-minute mile, actually, you described was pacing, wasn't it? You know, the, the idea of, of, of pacing and providing support. And actually, that's not really something we do very well in – everyday life so if you think about pacing in the sort of micro context within a, in a race or you might consider that i don't know during your day if i've got an important meeting at the end of the day it's probably a bit silly of me to have you know seven hours of meetings beforehand because it's going to tax my brain but just in this wider context if you think about the sort of way we live our life i don't think we're particularly good at pacing ourselves and that's just something that's fundamental to athletes isn't it you know just the idea that if you're training for who knows where the olympics will take place this year but every what every elite athletes schedule is built around making sure that you peak at particular times that's just inherent in in the way they train isn't it yeah and you know yeah so in the in the sports training world you've got concepts of microcycles and mesocycles and macrocycles and so in a given week you're arranging it so that your most important workout of the week is where is where you're freshest and able to give the best effort in a given month you're working on different things and then you've got a year long plan, like you said, or in some ways, in some cases, like for top Olympic athletes, it's a four year long plan because if, you know, if you're a track and field athlete, mm. um, it's great to be fast anytime, but it's a lot better to be fast than an Olympic year to have your best, you know, the people who they're, they're the true legends of the sport are the ones who have the best day of their lives once every four years at the, at the Olympics. And so there's a, there's a really conscious, uh, systematic planning approach to that. Most of us in our lives, um, you know, we're, personally these days, it's like, you know, my wife will ask me like, what, what should we have for dinner? I'm like, I, I'm not thinking past noon right now. You know, it's like, it's 10 in the morning. We'll, we'll think about dinner after <laughs> that. But it, if you can have a, a longer planning horizon, um, like even, you know, when I think about my career progression, the, the things that have worked out well, the things that where, where that have gone really well have often been the result of very strategic long range planning so that I'm doing some, I'm spending six months doing something now because I think it'll get me in position to do, to have an opportunity to do something next year, which will set me up to do the long-term 
to, to, to achieve a long-term goal. And so I'm, I'm not just like, like with the book endure, for example, it's, it's kind of a good example of something that I, well, I could have executed it faster. I maybe I shouldn't have taken me as long as it took me, but it was a very long range goal. Um, and there were a lot of different parts that I had to think about. And so I, you know, I was literally interviewing people going to, like, I flew to South Africa in 2010 to interview Tim Noakes for this book. The book came out in 2018 for the hardcover edition. That's a long time horizon, but there were a lot of things that I was trying to bring. For one thing, I wanted to make sure I really knew the material, you know, as well as anybody in the world. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't writing something half-assed. I mean, I'm I'm sure I still made mistakes, but I I really wanted to know the material well, and I wanted to have as broad a, uh, a, a, a sort of context on it. But I also wanted to make sure that, um, people would read the book that I would have, that, that there'd be an audience who was aware of me. And so I was building connections. I was building, uh, I was consciously, you know, building a Twitter following and, uh, starting an email newsletter and the Twitter started, you know, 10 years before, you know, when I first started about the book, the email newsletter started a year before the book, there's different timelines, but all these mm. things were converging on, on the goal. And anyway, to, to, to answer your question, to, to sort of respond to what you were saying, I agree that it's it's like I I don't think I I have a, a good forward plan right now, and I think um, to sort of judge my effort and pace and 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 pace over the long term that's really hard and it requires no re, having a really clear sense of what the finish line is because that's really the fundamental there is there's a, there's a fantastic yeah. literature on pacing in races and the the, the word that's the sort of uh, often it was coined in the nineties is teleo anticipation which is anticipation of the end point so pacing has no meaning if you right. don't know where you're going and so so pacing is intimately tied to understanding yeah. your goals yeah i mean if you look at the world right now it really feels like there's not an end point doesn't it <laughs> it's pretty difficult to, it's difficult to pace yourself at the moment when you don't know when you're going to be through the other side of this crisis although we did have some hope in the news yesterday in the uk that schools are going to open up in two weeks i know your kids are back at school so that'll be that'll be a day to rejoice in and of itself yeah the the, the small the small victories you have to celebrate them but yeah i actually wrote an article about uh, a few months ago just sort of making some parallels between this pacing literature and this idea of teleo anticipation of, of anticipating the end point mm. and how that plays out when you don't know where the end point is uh, in you know obviously in the context of the pandemic but i i i what I the race that I used to, to to illustrate this point was there's a there's a, a race format in ultra running called the the backyard ultra, and the, the way you do it it's you run um, every every hour you have to run I can't remember it's like four yeah four point one six miles or something such that uh, by the end of twenty four hours you'll have run one hundred miles but. At the start of every hour, you can't you can't work ahead. You can't just run twenty miles and then take a race. At the start of every hour, you have to show up for the start, and then you have to run four point one six miles, and the race just keeps going until no one's left, and or until one person is left. So you don't know if you're going to wow. have to run for twelve hours or for. And I think the winner of the one that I wrote about ran like sixty one hours or something. So it's like two and a half days of every hour running four point one six miles, and you know. Well, one of the guys who's who's very good at this, who had won a previous edition of this, his his advice is like, you know, or he actually said, you know, in, in some senses, the mental side is easy because you can't plan ahead. All you can think about is the next loop, the next hour. 
that's all there is. You you can't yeah. you, you don't know what's going to be happening in ten hours. But in another sense, it, it's it's very hard to get the yeah. most out of yourself. So it's very mentally de- demanding. And so this guy Michael Wardian, who won the, the 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 quarantine backyard ultra, he was about to drop out after like forty two hours, and his, and and his wife was who was his support crew was like, well, what, what's wrong? Are you hurt? Or and he's like, no, I just I don't want to be out here anymore. And she was like, well, that's a not a very good excuse. And he was like, oh. Yeah, I, I guess not. So then he kept going for another twenty hours. It's like so he thought he was at his limits, but once wow. it, once he kept going, so his yeah. pacing was the, normally in a, in a run. And you're like, you're not like I'm at my limits. Oh wait, I can keep going for twenty hours. That just goes to show that if you don't have a finish line, you kind of don't. You have no no idea what your limits are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean. I'm interested to talk about recovery in within this context. I mean, who knows how long it took that guy to recover from running for 60 hours. I can't even imagine. But again, in, in these challenging times, I often emphasize to people the importance of just t- taking some time off, you know, giving yourself a chance to recover from the underlying stresses which exist. Now, clearly for elite athletes, recovery is you know as critical as the training itself. I'm interested to what extent we need to put as much thought into recovery as we do into our training. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the business context, I actually read an article in a in a, a newspaper here in Canada, the Globe and Mail, just this past weekend, uh, making the case for a four day work week, and citing mm. a bunch of you know there have been experiments. There was a in Japan, a company did a, like a randomized trial of four day work week versus five day work week, and the productivity was as high, if not higher. And it's like if you look around at all the evidence. It's like every time people test things like taking a break in the middle of the day or shorter work hours or, you know, or even when they test like productivity as a function of cumulative work hours, once you get it beyond like 50, work, 50, 55 hours, your marginal gain from another hour worked is uh, flat or or negative in some cases. You're, you're getting worse, not better. I, I don't know why it's so hard for us to accept this because it just doesn't seem logical, right? Like you're... There, of course, if I yeah. stay at my desk longer, I'm going to get more done. So we all, I think, or virtually all of us fall into this trap of assuming that you, your productivity is a function of time. Um, whereas the, the, there's there's pretty pretty robust evidence, and especially when you start thinking about things that involve creativity, um, you know, generating new ideas, alternate approaches to problems. So... I think there's a really strong case to be made to to apply this generally in sports. It's it's um, yeah. There's a reason it's a multi billion dollar industry because uh, it's it's recovery is where the adaptation happens. Recovery is what dictates how hard you're going to be able to push in your workout the next day. I mean, it, it's an obsession and it's become a a monetized obsession in the sports world. Um, it, it, you know, so that. There's this sense that you have to buy recovery. You need to have this, you know, the, the laser, uh, you know, massage antioxidant device or whatever, as opposed to like, yeah, go to bed, turn off your phone, uh, eat well, <laughs> like, mm. and uh, you know, there may be some marginal benefits from some of the ice bath kind of stuff, but really, the the basics. And and, and the one thing the one thing I always emphasize when talking about recovery is like, sleep is great nutrition is great, all that stuff. None of it can compensate for a poorly designed training program. So it doesn't matter how much you sleep. If you're 
like, I'm going to do a hard workout Monday and a hard workout Tuesday and a hard workout Wednesday. It's not going to work. You're, you know, you can't, you can't mm. recover your way out of a stupid pr- training program or a program that is too intense for yourself. And I think that's, again, j- you know, to, to draw the analogy, I think that's like, if you've got an insane work schedule or if you've got a crunch, if you're an accountant and it's coming up to tax season and it's just like, there's no way around it, you have to work long hours. It's going to help if you can focus on getting as much sleep as you can. It's going to help if you give yourself, you know, a mental break, go for a half hour or 15 minute walk in the middle of the day. It's going to help. It's not going to fix everything. You can't, you, you can't uh, wash yeah. away the, 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 the troubles of overworking, but it might help you get through a particularly stressful time. And we all do them. No, no, we, nobody is perfect at avoiding crunch times. Uh, so, um, yeah. yeah, but to me, I guess the, 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 the well, number the thing. one that's thing the... I would say is, is fundamentals. Don't, don't look for the hacks, like take care of the basics. And there's, a, there's another concept in, in elite, or at least in endurance sport that's, that's, um, I think become very, very common is an idea, an idea called polarized training. And this is the idea that you shouldn't go out every day and, do your workout at a, you know, seven, six or seven out of 10 effort that you're going to get more out of it. If, uh, some days are like nine out of 10 effort, you really like that's it's, that's Mm. super hard in a training context. And other days are like four or five out of 10 effort. And if so, if you, if you look at elite endurance athletes, that is almost a universal pattern that, and, and the ratio is actually surprisingly, it's like maybe 20% of your training time is super hard. 80% 80% is easy. And so the most, yeah. as a, you know, I'm come from a running background. Most of the 80% of the running that I would do would be conversational pace. I'd be out with friends. We'd be chatting. And if, if we were going so hard that it was hard to have a chat, that was a sign we weren't tra- training appropriately. And so there's, there's a sense that, oh, those elite, mm. you know, elite athletes train so hard. Yeah. Sometimes they train so hard that they'll be puking in a bucket at the end of the workout, but that's 10 or 20% yeah. of the time, the other the rest of the time. And so as a result, if you do that, you can accumulate more time. You can accumulate a lot, a big volume of training at an easy effort. And then you have some time that's really hard, but you've got to know the difference yeah. between those. And you can't just be stuck in that middle ground where you're going kind of hard, but not hard enough to get the benefits of going super hard, but so too hard to be able to recover in time for another hard workout the next day. It's amazing how that 80, 20 rule just is commonplace across so many areas of life. And Nassim Taleb has written about this is this sort of the, the, the idea that it's 80% of your investments are solid, safe investments. And then you invest your 20% in, in risky investments. They describe it as a bell curve effect. So either end is where you see the massive benefits and there's the danger of being stuck in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, is it called the Pareto principle? I think anyway, you, yeah, exactly. You, yeah, you, you see it uh, across fields that there's this, this sort of dichotomy. So and on that note, so you mentioned there's a lot of money in recovery and I'm testing something out of a, a wearable a strap on my wrist, a whoop. And I know you, you must get approached often from co- companies who are testing these types of things out. What's your take on wearables? And I suppose where I'm interested is clearly there are benefits. You know, to tracking things, data can provide insights. Yeah. But I must be honest, for, for me... For someone who is a little obsessed with sleep because I've got a toddler and I get a distinct lack of it, there's almost a danger to it for me. There's almost danger that I'm analyzing it too much and it becomes foremost in my thoughts. When actually, if I look at some of the data so far, it's telling me things that I could have probably guessed. It's kind of common sense, a lot of it. What's your, what's your thoughts on wearables in general? Where might the benefits lie and where are the risks? 
Yeah, no, I, I fall in, it sounds like a similar camp to you. Um, absolutely. There are benefits to wearables and data is useful. And the, you know, all the, all the cliches about what you can't, what you're not measuring, you can't control or you can't change. Um, but I think there's, there's, uh, downsides in some contexts for some people. So sleep is a classic example. I actually, I went to a talk a, a year or two ago by a guy named Charles Samuels, who's the the lead sleep doctor for Canadian, the Canadian Olympic team. Uh, he's sort of one of the world experts on sleep for elite athletes. And you know, I was hoping to get guidance on, you know, which apps should people use, blah, blah, blah. Um, at one point during the talk, he, and, and the audience was almost all, um, you uh, people who worked with Canadian Olympic teams. So it's all part of the sort of health uh, teams for, for various sports. And he was like, okay, um, what wearables are you guys having your athletes use to track sleep? And uh, not many people put up their hands. And he was like, good. My recommendation is none. Don't. And why is that? Well, because sleep is one of those kind of Heisenberg uncertainty kind of things where by measuring it, you, you change it. If you're having trouble sleeping, the last thing you need is, is to be worried about how many minutes of, you know, starting to obsess about it, because then that's what you're going to be lying awake yeah. at 1am thinking. It's like, oh no, I'm not going to make my sleep targets. Oh no. Now for some people it's mm, great. And I, yeah. um, but my, I recognize that my personality is a, a data loving analysis type of personality and so the the you know the, the story i often tell is back in the 90s when data was hard to collect i collected data i used to get up i used to wake up in the morning measure my heart rate then manually then stand up wait 15 seconds measure it again because there was some research suggesting the difference between those two numbers could be an early warning sign of overtraining so then i plotted in lotus one two three have graphs of like running at, and okay. I, you know, I'd plot, you know, my average mileage or my current weekly mileage compared to my four week running average and the ratio, blah, 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 blah. I had a lot of fun doing that stuff. And, and I know a lot of people these days on places like Strava or, or, or whatever, they're plot their training and it's fun to, to crunch all the data and it's great. But I recognize that for me, I've, I border on the sort of obsessive. I'm the type of guy who's like, oh, if I've got a streak of this many weeks of this much mileage, and I'm about to miss it. I, I need to go out and you know make the data look pretty. And so as a result, I, I run with uh, mm. an old Timex stopwatch that has zero, no, no GPS, no heart rate monitoring, because I think that's better for my mental health. And 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 personally, because I'm a, a long time runner and my wife's a runner, and it's just part of our culture, I'm not worried about whether I get enough exercise. Like I don't need to. I don't need the extra motivation to get out and run. Whereas there are lots of people who uh, or in a different space where it's like what they're looking for is something to spur them to get outside. In that case, wearables may be great. Um, sorry, I, I can go on on wearables for a long time. I guess the the one thing, the, the other thing I would say, the sort of the, the, that I think is a generalizable point. One of the and, and going back to recovery, one of the things that's hot these days is heart rate variability. Uh, it's a you know a measure of how much the the time between two heart rates or two heartbeats varies from beat to beat. And it's a, an indicator of what's going on in your autonomic yeah. nervous system. There's some suggestion it can be an, a, a recovery indicator uh, or, or an indicator of your recovery status. But it also varies just based on random things, the phases of the moon. Is, well, I mean, not really, but it, phases on, it varies on things that are hard to control. So if you wake up in the morning and you look yeah. at your heart rate variability and you use that to decide whether you should train hard or, tr or not train or take a day off, you're likely to be making bad decisions. 
And so in that sense, I would say, no, don't, right. don't rely on heart rate variability. If you use it as one more data point that feeds into a larger decision matrix where you're like, well, I've been training pretty hard lately. My mileage last week was 20% higher than it was in the previous weeks. I'm feeling bad. Subjectively, I don't feel good. My performance yesterday and the day before in my workouts was lower than normal. And my heart rate variability is super low. Then it's one more data point that helps you make that decision. If you're using that sort of matrix, then I would argue it's like, you don't need the heart rate variability at that point. You've got all the other, it's just telling you something that you already yeah. knew. It's reaffirming, like you feel like crap. You've been training harder than normal. You're getting slower. It's time to take, take it easy. But for some people, it's useful to have that extra pseudo objective uh, piece of data that adds into the matrix and says, yeah, and you know what? It, you're not just imagining it. You're, you're, it looks like your autonomic nervous system is also indicating that you need a break. So I, I'm wary of, 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 abdicating responsibility to the wearables. Um, oh, same with like power meters on a bike and stuff or let, letting it make decisions for you. But if you can, if you can use it as an additive piece of data to the rest of your, well, you're also continuing to pay attention to how you feel. That's great. Just don't, don't let it become the dictator. Interesting. Interesting. All of those things you just talked about are things that I am learning more and more about as I look at the screen in the report every morning. And some of it makes sense, but but often this is the thing. It's it's often reflects how I feel. Yeah, and and you know, so there's there's a glass half full and a glass half empty to that. One is like, yeah, it's telling you stuff you already knew. The other is like, we're all human. Sometimes we need something else to you know a nudge to, to like, like yeah. yeah, look what happens when you behave, behave it, and 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 maybe next time you'll be like, oh man, maybe I better get to bed. Otherwise, my my wrist monitor is going to yell at me tomorrow morning. And so you know, like it's it's. <laughs> It's in, in, in a sense, maybe it's, it's like a, it, it's, it's a, it's a helpful nudge as a, it's a much, as much about behavioral psychology as it is about physiology. I do think that a certain amount of flexibility in every way that you live your life is essential. Otherwise, I mean, certainly, you know, and you mentioned there, I mean, we, we both have young kids and uh, to a certain extent, you're never in complete control of your life. Are you? So uh, if you live by very specific rules, it would, like, it would be very difficult. It, it's, it's certainly uh yeah, it's it's it forces you to, to to learn to live with with external control. You know, for I, I I'm a person who likes to be in control and well planned. And over the last six years since my my older yeah. daughter was born, it's like, all right, you got to learn to to swing with the breeze sometimes. <laughs> well, Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. So interesting. I absolutely loved the book, as I've uh, repeatedly told you. So uh, thanks for that, and uh, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Ali. It was really fun to have this wide ranging conversation. So that was my conversation with Alex Hutchinson. I will put a link in the show notes to his book and and the article he mentioned there about pacing. I'm also going to be writing an article myself related to that, which will come later this week in my future work life newsletter, which you can find on Substack. And again, I link to in the show notes. Please make sure you subscribe to the newsletter and of course to this podcast. Have a great week and I'll see you here next time. <laughs>